This is the April 1st um, SWAT Bible study via Zoom due to coronavirus. Sorry that the sound quality isn't awesome, but hopefully it'll be okay and get the point. Uh, at least you can get uh, the stuff that we covered. So thank you guys for listening. And uh, again, uh, I apologize for any bad sound quality. Okay. So uh, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, if we can get on our knees, uh, if you can, and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Okay. Father God, thank you so much for uh, this day. This is a day, Lord, that we get to come together via Zoom to uh, to kind of look at your word and have you speak to our hearts individually. This is not just a time to connect with each other. It's a time to connect with you. And uh, I pray that, Lord, every guy who is connected on this Zoom conference right now, Lord, our hearts would be open. We would uh, be soft to your word that no matter what's going on in our life, that for the next 30 to 40 minutes, you take away distractions and really let your word penetrate our hearts so that we would be drawn to you. We would uh, really value, Lord, your, your presence in our life. We have something that uh, for thousands of years, people couldn't experience, and that's daily access to the most high God. Let us not take it for granted today. I pray that we would help even be more appreciative after we look at this text today of what we get the benefits of that so many people throughout history did not have. And so thank you for each one of these guys. We lift up the Snyders to you, Lord, who are struggling with the virus, and we pray for them. We pray that you would provide good health care for them, that, Lord, you would bring healing to them. And we pray, Lord, that those around them that know you and love you would be ministering agents to them as they go through this, as well as all the people, Lord, who are struggling with the effects of this virus that we don't know a whole lot about. But we know you're on your throne. You're not surprised. So let your church rise up. Let us minister to the ministers, Lord, those who are the doctors, the nurses, the medical technicians who are helping fight this war against this virus in our country and throughout the world. And we pray, Lord, also for um, just your church, for your church to be a bright light of hope, not to be panicked, not to be in fear, but Lord, to stand firm in the hope that we have in Jesus and then to take that hope to other people. Lord, there is none like you in the whole universe. You are the one true living God. You are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You are the God of our fathers. And Lord, you never change. Even though our world changes and our situations change, you don't. You are steadfast and your love is new every morning to us. Every morning we wake up, we get new mercy in our life because we are very flawed and broken men. And so Lord, as we look at your text, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and teach us. Broken men just wanting to hear from you. Feed us today on your word. And Lord, let us be fed and then go live for you in such a way that we put you on display to those around us. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your love. We want to express our love, even though it's flawed, we want to express our love to you this morning, Lord, with the affirmation that you taught Moses to teach us. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. And you shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your heart. All your soul. All your soul. And all your strength. All your strength. And love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. As yourself. As yourself. Amen. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 9 today. And just for those who are joining for the first time, like I know, Henry, you've listened to some of this, but uh, I just want to give a quick reminder that in the book of Hebrews, 
the, the main theme is that Jesus is superior to everything. And, and when it means superior, it's talking about in a, in a spiritual connection way to God the Father. Every other religion in the world, everyone teaches that you have to do something in order for God to accept you. And in the minds of the Jewish people, even, they had that belief based on the Mosaic Covenant. But the Mosaic Covenant was never meant to bring them into the right relationship with God. It was meant to restrain them and to show them their need for something greater than themselves, that God provided a way for them. So the writer is writing to uh, three basically groups of people in this letter. And if you remember, the first group are people who've left the old covenant sacrificial system of where every year they would have to go in to the tabernacle or the temple and bring a sacrifice to have their sins atoned for for the year. The priest served as an intermediary for them. There was a high priest every year that would take the sacrifice and basically offer forgiveness to the family. And so what the writer's saying is leave that old covenant system and come to Jesus. And one group did that. That was the first group. They were all in with Jesus. But the second group didn't. They left that system, but they didn't come to Jesus. And they were going back to that. And they were really trying to conflate Christianity with Judaism and, and kind of say, yeah, we believe Jesus is Messiah, but we're still going to do the temple worship, the, the rituals and all those stuff. And so the writer's saying, no, don't go back. Why would you go back to that old system when the the reality of that system is here because the old system was never designed to be the end all it was to point toward the reality and so in chapter one he writes that jesus is superior to everyone okay in chapter two he writes that he's superior to angels in chapter three he talks about him being superior to moses who gave them the mosaic covenant which was sacred to them it was it was their big thing. Moses was like everything to those people, to the Jews. And so um, even more so than Abraham, they considered Moses was the guy who got the law, the tab, you know, the tablets from God. He was the one that erected the tabernacle who, where they would meet with God. You see, they saw the visible effects of God on Moses in ways that they had not heard or saw in Abraham. If you remember in the Old Testament, it says when Moses would come out, his face glowed. They'd never seen anything like that. And so they they held Moses up to this unbelievable high level spiritually in their life of intermediary between man and God. He was in their mind the highest, even really more so than Aaron, even though Aaron was a high priest. But in chapter four, um, he, he, he says that Jesus is the great high priest. And the most important function in Judaism was the high priest. And he says, Jesus is the greatest. And we looked at chapter seven, where he mentions this guy, Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is important because, and some of you uh, have, have learned this because we covered it in SWAT. I never knew this before. I really studied it here. That Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament as it talks about the, the messianic psalm from David about Melchizedek and the fact that the, the, the Messiah was going to be a king and a priest. He was a priest and king. He was divinely appointed. He preceded Abraham. As be, he was greater than Abraham. He was a king of righteousness. By That's what his name meant. He was a king of peace because he was a king of uh, Salem or Shalom. And he was the one that basically uh, the Messiah was going to be the one who would rule forever. And in Psalm 110, that's what he brings out. That's why it's the most quoted. And we saw in uh, chapter 7 that he gives us this new Messiah that the new covenant brings us, actually, who he's the administrator of, unrestricted access to God. Guys, this was something they never knew. The Old Testament people never knew because they had very limited access to God because the old covenant never gave them anything, but they could go once a year. And even then they couldn't go into the presence of God, only the high priest could. 
And so in chapter eight, we looked at the new covenant and why it's better than the old covenant. And really, I know it feels like we're just kind of um, a rat in a cage or a gerbil in a cage going around and around about the same thing, talking about a better covenant, a better priest, and a better ministry. And that's what we looked at. But really, the writer continues to emphasize this point. And John, I think about in the military, you know, in the military, when they really want you to know something, when they're doing military instruction, what do they do? They repeat it over and over and over again. And that's what he's doing with the the people in this letter to the Hebrews. He's saying that Jesus was a better priest because he was heavenly, not earthly. And and the, the new covenant brings a better model of worship because the old covenant was a model, or he calls it a copy, a shadow, or a pattern. And then it gives us a better ministry because we get to show the world God's grace, In uh, chapter 8 last week, we looked at five I wills. Remember that in in chapter 8, verse 1? He said, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 8. He says, I will. I will do what? He says, I will establish a new covenant. It's on him. It's not on us. I will make a covenant with the house of Israel. He says, I will put my law in their hearts. I will be their God. I will be merciful toward their sin. I will remember their sins no more. And I think sometimes we don't really grasp that that God says, I will. He doesn't say, Joe, you have to do this and then I will. That's the old two-way covenant. You know, he doesn't say, Anders, if you if you do these tasks, then I'm gonna do this for you. He says, I will. And it goes back to Genesis chapter 15, where he made that Abrahamic covenant where he says, you know what? I will make the blood covenant. If you blow it, it's on me. And he took the death on the cross himself that we deserve. And that's what he was trying to say. But we saw not only God's grace, we saw his power. And I don't know if I covered this last week, but in Jeremiah 31, right after the new covenant, God makes this unbelievable promise because Israel thought that God was done with them. You ever feel that way, Don? You ever feel like God is done with you because you've just blown it so bad? I know I have in my life. I felt like, okay, God can't, he can't take care of this. I've blown it really bad. And I just feel so unworthy. And and Israel felt like that way. And in Jeremiah 31 verses 35 through 37, God says, you know what, Israel? When the, when the sun stops shining, when the moon stops rotating and and reflecting the sun when all these things that i've created fail that's when my word to israel my promise to israel will fail i that's pretty encouraging isn't it that 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 the god of the universe says that my promise is going to fade you've blown it so bad that i can't fix it when everything that you see that i've created crumbles i mean that that is very encouraging and what he's saying is I've got the power to make it happen. That's why he, it says in Philippians 1, is faithful to complete the work that he started in you. And so, guys, when we blow it, you know what that does? It should bring us back to the cross. And as it brings us back to the cross, it makes us more humble, more aware of our sin, and it makes us hopefully realize what he's done and be more grateful and we live out a life of holiness not based on obligation but based on gratitude because of his power and his faithfulness to us but then we saw last week also that in uh, the last part of um, chapter 8 that the need for the priesthood the sanctuary all that was done away with with God's mercy because his sacrifice is once for all we don't need a priest to offer sacrifice every every um every year in fact the pope last week i don't know if you heard this the pope told everyone but in light of the coronavirus you don't have to confess your sins to a priest you can go directly to god (laughs) now think about that that's been true since jesus died on the cross when the veil was torn we don't need a priest anymore. I know that's that's mind-boggling, but 
the the pope said last week you can go directly to god we've always been able to go directly to god since jesus died and so um we saw that last week that god's grace his power and his mercy the writer to hebrews was trying to share that with these people who were wanting to go back now how how you're right john it is a huge deal for catholics to go to a priest but in light of what this writer's saying, I don't think they grasp what, what they're saying because I know people in my life that have felt a need to have to go to a priest and we don't need a priest to teach us. We don't need a priest to go to God for us. Jesus is the only mediator that we need and that's what that writer's saying. Now, I don't think you ought to take your Bible and go smack a Catholic person on their head and say, hey, you don't need a priest. That's not the way to influence them. You you talk, you speak the truth to them and you share with them from this text what he's saying and let the spirit. I remember when I was in the Marine Corps, I had a guy that was in the Catholic Church. And, you know, I've been trying to witness to him and he finally came to Christ. And when he when he trusted Christ. He started going back to the Catholic Church, and I was really frustrated with that because the church he was going to at that particular time, I knew, was focused so much on external and works because he would talk to me about what they were teaching. And I did, and and I just, as I prayed about it, I really felt like God moving me to, to share with him things, but really not very directly, more pray it for him. And do you know, as I prayed for him within a year, he came to me and he said, you know what, Doug, they're teaching messed up stuff because it ain't lining up with what the Bible says. And he ended up leaving that, not because I made him leave, but because God revealed to him through his word. God, this is why the best thing you could ever do with anybody is take them to the word of God, pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal it to them. Because he left, not because I told him he should leave, he left because he realized that what they were teaching wasn't lining up with what God says in his word. And so as we look at chapter nine today, God's revealing something to us that I hope you will... Um, be encouraged by because God today, what, what happened after last week? So you have these people going, what was the old covenant bad? I mean, was the old covenant, I mean, you're saying it's obsolete now. Was it bad? And he goes, no, no, it wasn't bad. It just had a different purpose. It had, it didn't, it never had the purpose to bring you into the presence of God 24 seven, which is what the new covenant does. The old covenant never had the purpose to make you clean on the inside. It merely atoned for your sins on the outside. And so what he does is he reveals the divine purpose and the limits of the old covenant picture as compared to the new covenant reality. And so as we look at this text today, I want you to notice there's going to be five things that he brings out about the old covenant and three things about the new that I want to focus on. Okay, so if you got a pen, you want to write this down, you can. So the old covenant provided a limited earthly dwelling place for God's presence. That's really important that the old covenant provided a limited earthly dwelling place. Why was it limited? because it was temporary. Now we know God is everywhere, but he would, he would manifest his presence temporarily when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and guess who had access to that presence? Only one person in all of Israel. It was the priest, the high priest at that moment when he went in there and he threw the blood on the Ark of the Covenant for the sins of the people, he went into the presence of God for that moment, and it was very short. It was very temporary. But that was never meant to be the end all. That merely represented a heavenly reality, and we're going to see that. Second thing was it provided a limited picture of a coming reality. And by that, I mean the old covenant laid out the way the tabernacle looked, which eventually became the temple. And it was, it shows, according to what the writer in this text today says, a picture of how we are to approach God. How many of you guys think you can just go to God anyway, any, anyhow? I mean, like before Christ, think about that. How many people thought, well, there were certain ways. I told you every other 
uh, religion in the world teaches that your sins are forgiven by doing certain things. You have to do things. In India, you know what they do? You know how they atone for sins? They burn the bodies, take the ashes and pour them in the Ganges River, and then they drink that water to drink the sins of the people and, and, and try to live out a better life than the people before them. I mean, that, that's, that sounds crazy, but that's what they believe. And, and so there's all these different systems to deal with sin. And that way that God was providing was showing what was going to happen in the new covenant, but it was a very limited picture. The third thing was the old covenant provided limited and temporary accessibility to the father. We talked about that a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, that they had very limited access and it was very temporary. The only reason the high priest went into the Holy of Holies was because God selected that one guy. He had no holiness on the inside. In fact, look at Aaron, the very first high priest. How good was he, Phil? <laughs> he wasn't very good. He was an idolater. I mean, you know, so so it was very limited and temporary access. That's the old covenant again. So limited earthly dwelling, limited picture, limited access, but it also provided limited cleansing. Guys, remember I talked about a couple of weeks ago when, when the priest would give that sacrifice for the sins of the people. Everybody would bring their lamb that time of year. They would come. Guess what? On the Day of Atonement, they would receive a blessing of forgiveness being extended at that moment. But remember what I told you when, oh, Yaakov would go down the road and uh, he would, or Jacob would go down the road and he'd be start having a fight with his wife or do something with his kids. It was sinful. And all of a sudden, he felt dirty again. And so for the whole rest of the year, he had to wait till he came back to be cleansed. Think about that. I mean, think about that, Mike. When you blow it, Mike, with Greg, you and Greg getting in an argument about something, you know, you feel bad, don't you? That's, that, that's the conscience that is not cleansed. And these people didn't experience that. And so in the, the fifth thing was, the old covenant provided a ministry that was focused on the external, not the internal. So, so five things, a limited earthly dwelling place, a limited picture of a coming reality, a limited accessibility to the father, limited cleansing, and a focus on the external, not the internal. But the new covenant, the new covenant gave us the divine reality that the old Testament picture, the old covenant picture. We see the divine reality that has come. The one that was pictured in the tabernacle and the temple, that's what we see in the new covenant. The other thing is the new covenant provided an unlimited, more effective sacrifice. What does that mean? That means that our sin and our conscience, our sin is gone and our conscience is clean. So that means Chuck, when you blow it with your wife, even though you feel like dirt, you confess it like God says in 1 John 1, 9, and you can feel clean on the inside. You don't have to carry that for a year. I mean, that's good news, man. I mean, that's awesome news that, that we can do that. It provides a better cleansing. So it's a, it's, it provides the divine reality, an unlimited, more effective sacrifice, and a better cleansing than the old covenant. So that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to read the text and then we're going to talk about the application of it. Okay. So really, if you have your Bibles, you can either just listen to me or you can join with me. We're going to read nine, one through 14. Okay. Starting in verse one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations. Now I want to tell you what that word means. That word literally means like a house law. I mean, it means like, I want you to think, uh, think back to college, guys, you guys who were in dorms as freshmen, you know how you had a dorm parent or a dorm person, they kind of laid down the law for that house. That's what that word means. That's what it embodies, that it's the house law. So even the first covenant had uh, regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So he's going to tell us Basically, he's laying out a preamble here. This is what I'm going to talk to you about. And then he flip-flops it. He tells us about the earthly place of holiness, and then he tells us about the regulation. 
So verse two, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. So what he's saying is the tabernacle was divided into two places, a holy place and a most holy place. And it says, having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn containing the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. So what you have is you have the holy place and the incense wasn't really in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. The incense was right before you went in. And I'm gonna show you a picture in a minute if I can get this to work. But basically um, you had in the, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, it had the uh, staff of Aaron, which symbolized God's leadership. You had the jar of manna, which symbolized God's provision. And then you had the two tablets, which symbolized God's covenant. So that was the thing that was in the ark. And remember, we talked about why it was in the ark, because when the blood was thrown on the ark, it symbolized God forgiving our breaking of the covenant, our rejecting his leadership, and our rejecting his provision. That's why those things were, I believe, were in the heart, aren't there, okay? Above, and verse 5 says, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. You know why he says that? Because they didn't have that anymore. They didn't have the tabernacle in 70 AD, which was about when this was, right before the temple was destroyed. They didn't have it laid out like that. Now we know from the writings, we can construct what it probably looked like. And I've been a replica. I've been in a replica of it. And it's like what I'm gonna show you in this diagram in a minute, it's exactly laid out like the word says. It says in verse six, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. So now he gives us a commentary. He's saying, guys, listen, the temple or the tabernacle, he doesn't mention the temple, he's talking about the tabernacle, is symbolic of what God is doing. The, first, the holy place is symbolic of the, the present age. The most holy place is symbolic of the new covenant. Does that make sense? So the old, the, so the, just the holy place was where it, it, he's just talking about this is, this all is symbolism of what's going to take place. And then he goes and he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations, again, there's that word, it means house law, for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He says in verse 11, but when, the, when, the, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even the, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. May God bless his word. Now, as we, as we read that, 
I want to go back to kind of the outline I laid out. The first idea I said was the old covenant provided a limited earthly dwelling place. It merely represented a heavenly reality. And that's what he said over here in uh, verse um verse nine where he says this is symbolic for the present age he's saying that the old covenant the old tabernacle was never meant to be the place where all god's people would be in fellowship with him how many people were in fellowship with him in the tabernacle only one could go in and actually experience what it was like to be in his presence it, it but it was to provide a limited picture of a coming reality okay I want you to think about this. All right, so when somebody you love goes away, David Gray, I know your son's off. He's he's moved away. You got a picture of him, I'm sure, around the house that you look at. There's a picture somewhere that you see. Even though you can FaceTime, you still like having a picture of him. Now, I want you to imagine for a second, your son comes back home to visit from where he is, and you stand there in his presence, and all you do is look at that picture. That's ridiculous. Nobody's going to do that. When the reality is there, we're not going to keep looking at the picture. And that's what the people were doing. They were wanting to go back to the picture. And he's saying, no, you've got the reality here. And I want to show you, let me see if I can do this. If I can share my screen and I'm going to bring this up. You see, you see, so you see the temple, you see the tabernacle, I mean, right? Okay, if you look down, so this is this is how the tabernacle was laid out. Okay, so if you look at this, the tabernacle had really three main parts. It had an outer court, it had uh, which was entered through through the single gate, um, and and then you you basically went into the holy place, and and then in the in if you go in before you ever went into this place, remember you came through, remember I talked about there being an altar of sacrifice before you ever went into this place, there was an altar of sacrifice. Then there was a, a brass basin, which was a sea or, you know, a laboratory kind of a, a bowl that had water for the cleansing of the priest. But then they went into a, a kind of a rectangular skin covered building of uh, that was divided into two rooms, the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies. You see that on this diagram? So, yeah. all right. So you go through the veil into the holy place, and you see this thing called a menorah, but it was a lampstand. Really, in here it's a candlestick. It's not really a candlestick. It was it was a lampstand. It, it just they burned these these lights, and it was to illuminate. Remember that illustration I gave a couple of weeks ago about it being there. You know, is there was a way to approach God and, and you had to go through a gate, you had to go through a way of blood, then you had to go through a way of cleanliness. And, and when you saw the light, it illuminated truth, it illuminated the way to God. And then as, as you went through that, there was also a table of showbread. It had 12 loaves of bread on it, and that was God's provision. That's why Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. It's God's provision for us. And then there was a uh, an altar of incense that symbolized prayers and, and prayers going to God and, and worship. You go in in a spirit of worship. You see that incense altar? Then you went through another veil, and you went into the Holy of Holies. And in that, it was only the Ark of the Covenant that had what I told you. Now, when you went into that place, when the high priest went in there, that was the dwelling place of God. There was the Shekinah glory. Maybe, maybe you've heard of the Shekinah glory, but it was, the, it was the glowing light of God's presence there, which rested really between the cherubim, which was on top of the mercy seat, and, and the ark itself. And so, and in the ark, I said, was the staff, the jar of manna, and the tablets of the law. And, and that was the picture of how we approach God. And does everybody got, I hope everybody's got a good picture of that. You can kind of see that. I just wanted you to see there was a way to approach God, but that was never meant to be the, the way that it was going to be forever. It was only the point that you just didn't go to God on your own. You had nothing to bring to God. 
And I, I hope that makes sense. And that gave you a little picture. I got to walk through the actual replica of that. And that always was meant to provide a limited picture. I think guys, that's why this guy doesn't go into, um, he doesn't go into the temple at all. The, the, the system didn't change with the temple. It was just a more permanent structure, but there was still that same process of going to God. And one of the uh, one of you guys asked who had access to the holy place, just the priest. You had to be a priest to go into the holy place. You had to be the high priest to go into the most holy place. But only the high priest had access to the presence of God. Now, guys, that's very limiting. It's very limited, and it's a limited picture of what was coming. And the only reason that the high priest could go in there was because God selected him. He selected who the high priest was by virtue of what? The tribe of Levi and through divine, uh, you know, picking who was going to be the high priest for that year. And, and you had to be invited. You couldn't just go to God on your own. And, and, and guys, so we see that limited access. I think in verse seven, it says, only the high priest and he but once a year. So he's bringing out the fact this was a very limited thing. And if you remember in verse 8, if you look down in verse 8, it says, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic. In other words, there's no access to cleansing, to full cleansing until what the veil was torn because only the high priest could go into there and and that's why in matthew 27 verse 50 and 51 you see that the veil was torn from the top to the bottom because prior to that only the high priest could go in there everybody else simply received a blessing of forgiveness temporarily but no fellowship with god and and, and it was a way for god's people oh, to to acknowledge forgiveness through a yearly sacrifice. In other words, the, the, the payment for sin, the penalty for sin, every year you were reminded. Do you think that was bloody Amos every year? I mean, every year you had to think about that. What you had to do to get that sacrifice there, you had to raise the lamb. And then when you brought that lamb, it was bloody. It was messy. And you were reminded every year of the price of sin. You came not by your own righteousness, but something had to die in order for you to be forgiven. And God was kind of laying out for his people the cost of sin every year. And But it was very limited. And the cleansing left, you left and you get in a fight with somebody in your family or another friend back home. And you felt dirty for the rest of the year until you went back and you brought that sacrifice. So it was very limited cleansing. But the other thing he brings out in verse 9 is that um, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What happened in that old covenant could not clean our conscience. It just couldn't do it. And so, so that was it, was, it was just focused on the ceremonial, he says in verse 10. But it dealt only with food and drink, which was the ceremonial stuff, various washings and regulation until the time of reformation. And here's what he's saying there, guys. The law never changed anybody. It simply revealed the need in people. The old Mosaic covenant, it brought us to the Father once a year, but it only dealt really with the breaking of the ceremonial stuff and providing a cleanliness for uh, and, and the form of, of forgiveness that was symbolic. But it never brought people into that right relationship with God. I hope that makes sense. So the whole picture of the old covenant was to just show us what was about to happen. It was a picture. Remember, it says in chapter eight, I think it was early in eight, a copy, a pattern, a shadow of what was to come. Now, let's get into the really what I think the encouraging part is of this text is 11 through 14. And in 11 through 14, he's telling us what the divine reality was. He says, but when Christ appeared, he was the one that brought the time of reformation. 
He says he brought the good things that have come through the greater and more perfect tent. You know why his was greater and more perfect? It was heavenly. What happened on earth was made by human hands. We see um, in uh, Acts 7, 48 and Acts 17, 24, that the most high doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands that the most high who made the world is in a heavenly place. And what does it say about Jesus that we've already covered? He anchors us in that heavenly place. He provided the divine reality that was pictured in the tabernacle that Jesus embodies that verse 11 says it was a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not man-made, not part of this creation. If you look a, a, a little ahead in verse 24, it says, he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Do you realize, and I don't know, uh, you know, Kent, if you think about this, that 24-7 that Jesus is in the heavenly realm interceding for Kent Ralston. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's mind-blowing to me. That God, when I blow it with Lori, is sitting there interceding on my behalf, even as I'm blowing it with my wife, saying, God, you know what? He's still living in that earthly tent. He's with me. He's ours. We love him. Be merciful, Father. Be merciful. And he is. Because I don't walk around trapped with this ball and chain of guilt that they used to feel for the rest of the year. It's gone. He says in 1 John 1, 9, as soon as we confess it, it's gone. And, you know, I think part of the issue for us is uh, it's difficult for us to grasp. When we think of heaven, we tend to think spatially, like up there or out there or wherever we think heaven may be, uh, that it's some distant part of outer space. And I don't, I don't know if you guys think of that, but a lot of times because of our tradition, we tend to think that way. Heaven is way up there, but we need to get away from that. And, and instead, if we get away from the spatial part and start thinking uh, as another dimension of existence, it's kind of a, an invisible reality of what's beyond our senses, uh, the spiritual world, the spiritual kingdom, uh, angels and demons are, are, are re- operating in this spiritual reality. And what the Bible's trying to teach us here and what's difficult for us to understand is that we can function in that dimension on a daily basis. It's hard for us to grasp that, but it's really trying to help us understand. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm. Now, Joe, you're not up in heaven in a spatial sense, but in a spiritual sense, we're seated with him right now with Christ, if we're in Christ. John 4 says that God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. First Corinthians, Paul says, he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. The thing is, You're united with Christ even at that moment. Paul says we just live in a body that is is plagued with this frailness that when we, we crave things, sometimes our body does something even though our spirit is willing. Remember what Jesus said? He said the spirit is willing to Peter, but the flesh is weak. And and so We've got to remember that even though all this stuff in the old just pointed to Jesus, and now we live in a new world. And he gave us, he says in verse 12, a perfect, more, it's a better sacrifice, a better payment, an unlimited, more effective sacrifice. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by some blood of a goat and calf, but his own blood thus securing, and circle this in your Bible, eternal redemption. You know what that means? That means he's paid for everything you've ever done, everything you do today, and everything you will do. He's, I, I just think that's an amazing truth, guys, that we don't, we don't keep in the forefront of our mind, that he gave a better sacrifice. You know why it was better? Because the lamb was a copy. 
it gave uh, because think about the lamb do you think was that lamb willing you know uh was that you know uh, elliot when when you think about that lamb and you let's say you had to take your lamb to god or you know to the priest to go in to be sacrificed was that lamb willing you had to tie that lamb down he he didn't want to be killed but jesus says i willingly lay my life down remember in john chapter 10 he says, nobody takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. He was a better sacrifice. He was a better payment. It says securing. If it, I don't know what it says in your translation there. It might say obtaining or obtain, securing. But the word there literally means something precious. He secured something precious. It's a word used with something precious. And I think I, I think that, that there's such a good... Um, there's such a good truth in that that he values you and we live in a world where guys especially you and me we're constantly seeking to validate our identity when we blow it we feel unworthy can i just tell you all something uh right now i can see right now 20 of your faces you know and when you when you think about it brad when you blow it do you feel unworthy I mean, you can just shake your head. I mean, when you blow it, you don't feel worthy. But because he gives a better sacrifice, he says, you know what, Brad, I love you even when you blow it with your kids or Vicky. He says, you don't have to validate yourself to me. My son validated you. He died for you. You're precious because he died for you. And I'm telling you that when you think about that, 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 should make us guys that should make us want to just dance with joy give him praise that you know what um it's funny because uh in verse uh of 13 and 14 he goes to say it gives us this complete cleansing look at verse 13 for if the blood of goats and bulls and, uh, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify how much more the blood of christ who through the eternal uh, spirit offered himself without blemish to purify our conscience he gives us a better cleansing guys you notice what he says it's not just from our sin he says but from dead works to serve the living god two points dead works does not mean sin dead works means our form of righteousness and what he's saying is there's nothing we could ever do to bring to God something that would take care of our sin. He did it. And, and that's why, you know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? If, if you, it's not Jesus wept. That's the shortest verse in the English Bible. But in the Greek, the shortest verse is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, which Brad's quoted about 30 times to me in the last few weeks. It says this, rejoice always. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. And you know what it means? It means because we are cleansed, we should be rejoicing always. Because we have 24-7 access to God the Father, we should be rejoicing always. So even though our world may fall down around us, even though the circumstances may be dire in the eyes of everybody else, we rejoice not in our circumstances. We rejoice because we have 24-7 access to the Father. Our sins are forgiven. We stand clean and nothing, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God. That is good news that's why just let me give you a quick lesson in and and in that from ephesians to go back to what i already quoted in ephesians chapter 2 i think um or ephesians 1 ephesians 1 said we are seated in the heavenly place i said that earlier ephesians 4 says we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling ephesians 6 says we are to stand firm in the lord so we sit in the heavenly place with Jesus. And because we sit in that place, we walk in a manner worthy of our calling and we stand firm in the Lord even when things fall down around us. You sit with him, you walk with him, and we stand with him. And what this writer is saying is, are you all in with Jesus? Are you all in? 
Gary Gilmore was an American criminal who gained international attention um, because he demanded to be executed. And you know what he said? He was he murdered some people and he was with first person executed and we got like one minute left. But you know what he said at the end of his life? He just said, I want to be clean. I want to be clean. The application for us as we leave, as this thing cuts off probably, is we're clean because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. There's nothing we could ever do. So stop trying to earn his favor. Stop trying to be right with him in your actions. Your actions are merely, are you expressing rejoice always in a, in a daily way. The way you live your life is gratitude. The way we live our life is an expression of our love for him. It does nothing to make God love us. No matter how holy you are, he will never love you more than he does because of Jesus. No matter how bad you are, he will never love you less because of your love, because of what Jesus did. And I hope that as we leave here uh, today and we think about this, I want to I wanna just close with this. In your own life, how are you valuing what Christ has done? Have you really been thinking about what he's obtained for us? Because Jesus offered himself, God makes no demands on us except to be in love with him because of what he's done. Therefore, we can set aside rituals. We can be free to love him, to thank him. And in this last week, just in a personal way, guys, um, I've been struggling with some stuff in, in my own family and because I've had brothers who spoke into my life, I was able to see God answer some specific prayers in me and dealing with some other people in my life because I have 24 seven access. I went to God with something and I realized on the drive here this morning, he specifically answered a prayer that I prayed that I didn't even, I hadn't even thought about something very specific that I didn't tell anybody, only God. And that's because I have 24 seven access to God. And I'm telling you, you do too, if you're his, if you're not his, if you merely gone through some kind of ritual, you got baptized, you got dunked, you got sprinkled and you think that did it. That's not it. That ain't it chief. Like my daughter, Kate says, that ain't it. The only thing that gets you into access with him is Jesus and Jesus dying on the cross. And if you've embraced that, then I encourage you this week and the rest of this week to rejoice always that he is your God and that you have 24-7 access to his presence. And share that with others. The last thing he says in verse 14 is he, he purified us to serve the living God. Put God on display in your world. I, I really appreciate you guys joining um, and um, Rick Brackett, if you're still on, I think you are. Would you unmute yourself and close us with prayer today, brother? I will, Doug. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. All right, go ahead, Rick, and close our time. Father, we 